I believe we are going live here. All right. right we are live we're live so welcome everyone welcome to lunchtime conversation and this is i'm don earl johnson and we're going to give you a moment we're going to ask you please to uh share this stream share the stream with your friends we're going to pause for a moment to give you time to do that in fact we're going to do it i'm going to ask all our panelists if you would would share this as well and we're going to give you a moment to share the stream and then we're going to get started Thank you for being here, and uh, we look forward to an awesome time as we talk about COVID uh, and the uh, Latinx experience. So again, take a quick moment and share this stream, and we're going to do it too. So panelists, if you would, grab your phones <laughs> and share the stream here. It's a privilege to um, be with you all. So let's go. Share. Church Auburn Hills. There we are. And share. Great. <laughs> Again, um, welcome to Lunchtime Conversations. I'm Don Earl Johnson, and I serve as the lead pastor for Life Church Auburn Hills. And we are a multicultural community that is being inspired, encouraged, um, and transformed by the grace, truth, and love of Jesus. Um, we really believe in pressing into the multicultural piece. And I hear people use the word intercultural as well. When we talk about um, multicultural, um, we talk about the elements of both uh, visual and voice. The visual piece to us is the easy part, that is the photo op, um, but the voice piece is central. It's the opportunity to actually see each other and value one another's voices, um, even though we are different. And so with that being said, I, um, I want to welcome you to this uh, lunchtime conversation. Our purpose for having these conversations is because it is central, we believe, to the gospel. We have what we call 3C friendships. And these are uh, relationships that consist of being committed, which is the first C. The second C being cross-cultural. Uh, and again, it's vital to God. And then the last C is being Christ-centered. And throughout scripture, I mean, the very promise to Abraham was to be a blessing and to bless him to bless the nations, to make him a father of many nations. And it's throughout the entire scripture, God reminded Israel, he said, is it light? Is it something that you take for granted that you're my servant, you're my vessel to be a light to the nations, one to restore the house of uh, Israel and also to be a light to the nation. So again, it is there. Uh, it's in the gospel uh, or the great commission um, to make disciples of, again, all nations. Um, even when Jesus turned the tables during what we call Passion Week, 
he was dealing with an, uh, an issue of inequity um, that was happening in the temple um, that was affecting uh, marginalized people um, in, the, in, the, in the temple. And what he said, is it not written that my house will be a house of prayer, called a house of prayer. And then again, it says in Mark to the nations, which was an echo of the scripture that was in Isaiah. Um, so it's important to God. And then you fast forward to the end of the book, Revelation uh, 7, 9. We see the picture, the end picture of all nations standing before his throne, worshiping God. So we believe these conversations are I'm going to jump right in. And so first I will welcome Carmen Guzman. And she was born, welcome Carmen, born in Mexico City and has resided in the U.S. We're losing the connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We lost the connection? Yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. He lost the connection, yeah. No, you are. So we're live without the host. Is there yeah. I guess. Vamos a hablar de la gente no puede ser. And we are still streaming. <laughs> Yeah, we're live. <laughs> we're live. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, because it says four participants only, which is all of us only. <laughs> well, I'm glad it wasn't my technology because normally at schools, the technology always fails. So I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> So what school did you work for? I work for Pontiac schools. Okay. And we have a large uh, Hispanic population. So I pretty much work with the Hispanic community. Uh, I'm, I'm like the mother here. I help everybody. I try to help everybody. What grades, what grades do you? Uh... No, I, I, I don't teach. I just, uh, I work, I serve as a liaison for them to help. Mm -hmm. I used to be a substitute teacher for 10 years. Then I left the, the classroom and I start um, just working in helping families and things. Like she that. plugged both in, in the same spot. Okay, now we see you again. <laughs> Thank you. All right, did you, I'm sorry, sorry about that. I had uh, something happen with the internet. So um, did you introduce yourself, the rest of <laughs> um, We talked to each other. <laughs> I've, I've, again, I apologize for that. Um, so again, Carmen um, Guzman, born in Mexico, reside 30 years, 
uh, serves in the community of Pontiac and is working in the school system and she's a liaison to the Hispanic community. So welcome, Carmen. Thank you. It's right. really a pleasure to be here. All right, cool. And Evelyn, Evelyn serves as the director of women's ministry and work in the community outreach for students. She serves as a volunteer, and I'm going to ask for Grace as I enunciate this, Iglesia del Pacto Maranatha. There you Did go. I... You got it. Okay. <laughs> Which ministers to a Spanish-speaking immigrant population. So, Evelyn, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And then me. Michael Carrion. Uh, Michael is a founder and lead pastor of the Promised Land Covenant Church in South Bronx, which is the heart of the U.S. coronavirus, coronavirus epicenter, uh, where uh, COVID-19 has been especially ravaging the African-American and Latino communities. And you'll, again, we'll learn more about each of them later, but welcome, uh, Michael. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. And uh, Clever Cabral is a Brazilian-American who has lived in Detroit suburbs with his wife, Glossia, um, since 2000. He works as a mechanical engineer for a Detroit Three automaker. And as a volunteer, he serves as the lead pastor for the Bra Brazilian church in uh, Troy, and that's bccmichigan.org, um, out of Kensington Church, uh, Troy campus. And welcome. I'm, a, I'm excited. Welcome, Clever. Um, I'm excited. Yes, sir. I'm really excited to have you all being a part of this panel. Um, it's an honor for me. Um, this uh, time is really your time. I'm, I'm just facilitating the conversation. We want your voice to be heard. And uh, before we get into the, um, I guess, the details of this conversation, uh, let I want you all to kind of let the audience know who you are personally. Um, and you can talk more about your family, uh, if you have grandchildren, the work you've done and, or the work you're doing, or, and share some interesting fact about you, hobby, food, music, art, or something of that nature. And um, Carmen, would you kick us off? Sure, okay. Um, well, everybody knows my name, Carmen. You know, um, I was born in Mexico, even though my parents are from Spain, so I feel like I come from families who emigrate to another country, even though I'm the only one who emigrated to the United States. I married a US citizen 30 years ago. I have two wonderful boys. One is 25 years old, the other one is 24. My 24 year old just graduated from college, but of course he doesn't have a job. He's working, doing like a true green stuff and things like that. But I tell him this will make you a better person and you learn humility. So I believe that that's very important. My husband is unemployed too. He's a mechanical engineer. If somebody else wants a job for him, um, <laughs> yeah, he was he was a contract for Chrysler, so we mm. hope that he will be called back soon because, wow. uh, you know, it's difficult times for everybody. I believe that God brought me to the U.S. not to marry an American citizen, but to come and work in the community <laughs> because um, I come from a family and from a country that is very different from this country, but I was in a very special place over there. I mean, I was a private schools, go to schools, everything. And most of the people didn't have that. So then when I moved to the United States, it's like, I felt like God was taking me to Pontiac because I started volunteering here 30 years ago. Then I, I was called to be a social worker. So I was social worker for 10 years and then for the school district. So working with this community has opened my heart 
And I just love this community and these people that I want to do whatever it needs to help them during every process of their life. I understand them and I love them. Amen. I think I'm not a grandmother and I hope it will take a long time. God decides when it's time, <laughs> but at this moment, my kids are just, um, you know, trying to find their ways in life. Okay, cool, cool. Thank you so much, Carmen. Evelyn? Hey, everybody. So I'm Evelyn. I am in California. I, um, I was born in Guatemala. I immigrated um, to the U.S. when I was two um, and pretty much grew up here uh, on the West Coast um, and just always had a heart for my community. I think growing up as um, we came in the 80s um, and just really living through a lot of um, being the only Latina women in a lot of settings, I think um, it taught me a lot. And I'm grateful for the, the church family that I have, the community I serve. I mean, I'm here, but I learned so much from them, the resilience. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. I mean, I, I've, you know, being in a Latino church, I'm like, what, what do I need to do? You know, it's kind of, we're like, oh, you need me to set up this? Okay, great. Oh, we need to minister here? Okay, great. So I, I'm grateful. I, I'm just... Um, I think that the way that God has just been working, um, I'm, I just appreciate that I, I'm able to witness all that God is doing in our community. Um, and then a little bit about me. I am currently um, in uh, seminary school at North Park University. Um, so that has been interesting. I'm doing it online. Um, so a little different than uh, being in the classroom. And I, as a, as a Latina woman, I love to be around people. So this is this has been a little tough for me because I naturally want to go and you know hug and but um, this is just teaching me something new. Um, I also have two children. I have um, two boys, Andres, and he is eleven, and Fernando, and he's eight. Um, so just bringing them along the ride, and you know, so they're they're also learning and. And, you know, they, they get to see all of, okay, we're going to be at church today. We're going to do this and that. So just trying to involve them also so they could see um, that there is beauty in being able to, to serve our community. Um, so that's, that's just a little bit about me. And, I mean, I, I'm grateful to be here with you guys in a conversation and really um, just learning. I mean, I really want to be able to learn and um, share a bit about what's going on um, here in our community. Sweet. Thank you so much, Evelyn. And again, welcome, Clever. Uh, Hi, name is Clever Cabral, uh, married to Glaucia uh, for 38 years. Uh, we have two Ooh. sons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looks like it was yesterday, you know? Uh, she's still very pretty. So uh, <laughs> we have two sons. Glauber is 38, and he has two children. He's married to Whitney and uh, Another son, the youngest one is 36, he's married to Joanna and he has three kids. The youngest one of the grandkids uh, is two and the oldest one is eight and the five, five grandkids. And they uh, give us a lot of uh, hope, you know. So we, we, we immigrated in 2000, the company that uh, I still work for, uh, transferred here to the US. Uh, I have been in U.S. many times before since '86, but was the first time for my family coming from Sao Paulo, Brazil, seeing snow. So first day was beautiful, uh, touching the snow, and then and then you guys know. She lives in California, so she doesn't know about that. But Evelyn, you're <laughs> what kind of have you been there? 
but but uh, uh, something different about myself is that uh, uh, me and, and Pastor is we are the only two that don't speak Spanish. In Brazil, we speak Portuguese. So Brazil is a large country. Uh, half of the South America is Brazil. Over 200 million people is speaking Portuguese. In most of them, they believe they can speak Spanish. And we, because we understand, because we're exposed, but when we try to speak, it kind of sounds really funny. So we, I learned my lesson. So I, I avoid, I understand, but uh, don't try to speak. Cool. Thank you so much. And, and both of your sons have been instrumental in um, various aspects of our ministry um, with uh, Cameron Underdown being our um, co-planter. Uh, H has worked um, a lot with him and uh, Glauber is a, is a leader in our small group, one of our um, small group leaders. And so I get to serve with him directly. He's in the, we're in the same small group. So thank you. Thank you so much. And last but definitely not least, Michael. Hey, so <clears throat> thank you for having us, uh, having me done it. I appreciate it. Um, uh, pleasure to meet. I think some of you I know on Facebook. Uh, so it's good to see you in person and uh, have uh, some context of your background. Uh, I am from the South Bronx, but originally from, uh, well, I'm biracial. So my father's side of the family is from Manati, Puerto Rico. So I am Puerto Rican. And the other side is from Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm also Afro. So I'm an Afro-Latino and some would say Black-Tino. And so in that context, uh, in that sort of by, by space, I, I sort of never really fit in, right? So I, I look too Spanish for the brothers and I act too Black for the Latinos. And so when I was in seminary 20 years ago, I hung out with Koreans for the, for the full time <laughs> they adopted me, right? Anyway, so I'm married for the last uh, 31 years. We have five wow. children, my wife, Elizabeth, and I. We have three grandchildren, and we have three pit bulls. And uh, being born and raised in the barrio of Manhattan and then migrating to the South Bronx, um, I just completed and retired from 30 years of pastoral ministry, and I now function as the overseer of all of our ministries in New York, uh, in the South and the North Bronx, I also function as the superintendent for our charter schools, the Bronx Academy of Promise Charter School, which is 100% uh, student body, uh, children of immigrants. Uh, we've got 700 students in our school, about 120 faculty and teachers. And we just got approved by the Board of Regents for our second school, which will be an additional thousand students, K wow. through eight. And then we'll start a, a junior, a junior high to high school, uh, probably within the next seven years. So I'm a church planter. I function with the denomination as a regional coach for church planting for the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I'm also an adjunct professor uh, at ATS and I do some moonlighting at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. And um, so, you know, uh, pleasure to be here. It's unfortunate that we have to be on a podcast to talk about a pandemic, but uh, uh, our context is the epicenter. And while there's been some shift and decline uh, I've been privileged to see the hand of God move powerfully and, um, and uh, grateful, grateful to, uh, to see what God is doing in ministry. Uh, Amen. In the area. Amen. Thank you again, uh, Michael. And we're going to, we're going to dive right in. Um, as you see, we have, we have some amazing people that are with us. And so again, thank you very much for being a part of this uh, conversation. Again, this is your talk. We want to hear your voice. 
Um, we are at a critical point, a turning point in, in history. We're at a turning point in the church and um, we don't want to miss this moment. Um, so I'm encouraging all the, those that are tuning in and, and um, ingesting this to, to really listen. As I said um, with the previous talk, I'm encouraging you to take off any partisan lens because I, I think it will skew um, what is being said and what you hear. What we're sharing, the perspective that we want to share is from a kingdom perspective. Um, we can't point, we can, we can point fingers at the world for being the world, <clears throat> but I really want to look at the church. Um, the, 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 we want to point the finger, look in the mirror there and say, as the church, are we being the church? Because the world will be the world. Those that are responding into the situations and doing what they're doing, they're doing basically, again, what what's in their heart. And as <clears throat> born again believers, as Christian, knowing that God has this objective uh, to reach all nations, we want to take it from that perspective and, 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 and again, move forward and not miss this moment that God has for us. So let's dive in. Um, as you know, COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on the economy. It's disrupted our normal way of living, uh, schooling, social interactions. But most importantly, um, this pandemic has taken a, a big hit on lives and disproportionately, especially in um, the black and Latino communities. So the first question I wanna ask you is to share with us, how have you experienced this pandemic personally and how has it impacted the people you serve? And so you can just, whoever wants to share first, again, talk about it personally, how, how this has hit you and um, also the people that you serve. Well, I have to say one thing. Um, my oldest son was in China when this happening. He was working in China. Fortunately for him, he was uh, not in China during New Year's, uh, the Chinese New Year's. Mm -hmm. So it took him a long time for him to be able to go back to China, grab his things and come back to the United States. Wow. It was very stressful because he was going country after country after country, trying to go back to China to get his things. And when he was, the first time he was ready to, to go back to the city that he was, when he, when he arrived to China to the first port that he stopped, they told him that his flight was canceled and he has to take another flight. And he called me and said, mom, I received a message from God. I'm not taking that flight. I'm going out of this country. So he skipped down and he went to Thailand. Hmm. And I was praying and praying until finally he said, mom, I'm going back home. I'm hmm. going to China, grab my things, I'm coming home. When he got home, it was just one week before everything happened. Wow. And you know, talking about um, all of this uh, racism and all of this discrimination, it was so funny. How many people that knew me, they thought that maybe my son is the one who brought the virus to, uh, to this area. Wow. And you know, I was telling people, I said, you think uh, that I will be an irresponsible person to have a son who is sick and I will be working with kids in a school district? I say, no, my son was never with, close to anybody who had the virus. And he was tested, he was checked by the CDC, and he's isolated. I don't even see him. So it was, it was very frustrating at the beginning. Then suddenly the school shut down. 
It was one day to another and we were shut down. And this community was lost. Mm -hmm. We were not able to help them to educate their kids. We were not able to teach them how to use computer. Some people doesn't speak English, how to communicate with the teachers. It was a very, very strong challenge. Mm -hmm. But I truly believe, and I tell people, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit was here. Because things, little by little, became better and better and better. And I know other panelists want to speak about their own experience, but I want to share that because to me it's important for people to know what happened to me. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Wow. It's something about human nature that wants to always blame. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, anyone? Uh, I understand what happened to the Brazilian community and our church here. Uh, we have to understand that immigration from Brazil to Detroit area is something new, okay? I, I have been here for 20 years, but uh, it took me six months to find the first Brazilian. Huh? But the last uh, eight years, 10 years, because the economy in Brazil was bad, the economy here was good. So many companies start bringing uh, the, the, the three biggie and the, the suppliers, they start bringing engineers from Sao Paulo and the other parts of Brazil. So the Asian group, they, they are in the, not in the, the risk. You know, most of them, they are families, young families, uh, couple with 30 to 40 years old, if it's now kids. But hmm. uh, if you, Look at the statistics. Brazil is number two now, and we are not proud about that. So U.S. has over 2.2 million people, that, and Brazil is getting close to 1 million. So Brazil is the second. And the same is half of U.S. in that. So every here has a parent or has someone in Brazil that's going through this situation. And, and we are mostly from Sao Paulo. That's where the worst part in Brazil, because it's a, it's a big city. Uh, they have been affected a lot for the work, okay? So uh, most everybody, they already got the pay cut or they are working last day. Some people, they are in furlough. And for those that they still don't have a green card, uh, it's very tricky, the situation. Maybe everyone can talk more about that, about the immigration stuff. But if they are in a work visa, and they are put in furlough for more than 60 days, they have to go back immediately. If not, they stay illegal. So there is uh, this immigration and economic is probably is what hurting them most. Uh, I got many requests for prayers about this situation. We have several people in the families in the church in this situation. Uh, they, if they don't get the back to work, they have to immediately leave the country and some they can't, the wife is pregnant and the period they cannot travel, so they fall into a limbo. So that's the situation that we are, we're paying, praying, we are confident God is going to open the doors. But that's, a, I'm talking about the, our community, Brazilian yeah. community. Here in this mm -hmm. Man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think, uh, I think for us, you know, similarly in our community serving, um, um, the majority immigrant community, it was really difficult. I mean, there were so many layers to it. Um, children didn't have access to internet. 
um, or didn't have all the, the resources needed to stay on track with their schoolwork. Um, then also came the language barrier. How could you know the parents know what assignments needed to be turned in? Right. And so it just felt like with this whole thing, our children kept um, falling behind more and more with the schoolwork, um, with getting the internet installed, all of it. I think it was really difficult and um, it was a lot of our children. Also uh, with our young adults in uh, universities, um, a lot of them were, were out in college and now um, a lot of parents lost their jobs. So now a lot of that fell on our young adults. They, um, you know, I was actually talking to them a little bit before our conversation and they were sharing how difficult it was to know that they had to finish up the school year at the college, but also, you know, worry, okay, mom and dad are without a job. So now this is going to fall on me um, and I need to go out there and make sure that I'm working. And so that exposed them to, to also, you know, they could get sick. Um, just so much of like, uh, from a mental health perspective, it really, it was a lot and it was very draining. And um, a lot of them are still very much worried of, are my parents gonna be able to, to get their job back when this is done? Will I have to support my family? Um, a lot of the um, cash relief access wasn't, wasn't there for a lot of our families. So they were really struggling. Um, so that's just some of the things that we see that our our community how they were impacted. Wow. Yeah. So Mike. you know, in, in our context, you know, uh, while the numbers are starting to climb now, I mean, uh, dive now, in regards to people coming out uh, positive, and the death toll is going down considerably. You know, um, they were already in our ministry context social ills and. Uh, pandemics going on economically. We are already impoverished. You know, we are in the South Bronx, the fourth congressional district of the United States. So highest unemployment, highest illiteracy, highest teen pregnancy was already part of the, the norm in the context. You add the pandemic and the plague and it just, it just further cultivates uh, to Evelyn's point, a, a culture of fear and anxiety. Uh, and then you now put the complexity of a social edict in place where people cannot, you know, leave their, their premises. And now you've got a, a formula for total uh, uh, implosion, especially within the urban margin space. You know, personally, we, we took it hard at our church. We lost 13 people to COVID in our church. And at the height of, of uh, I was coming back from a conference, I was speaking at Exponential and I was in Orlando. And as I was coming back to New York, I noticed that there was a lot of people with masks on, right? Now I'm from New York, so I don't, I'm not getting it. I don't, I'm not really paying attention to this COVID thing, right? But by the time I landed in the LaGuardia, there was already a crisis. The next week, I get a phone call from our principal. You know, for us, our first casualty was not a senior citizen, was not a person that had a upper respiratory issues or history. Uh, it was not somebody that was in a geriatric center. Our first casualty was a child. The oh. child told his mom, my side hurts. 11-year-old seventh grader, and two days later, he's gone. So, you know, dealing with that mom screaming, and I'm like, oh, my God. And she's like, pastor, my son, my son. And, you know, I don't have the words to give her. I didn't have a, a text or a theology to, to wrap around. I'm just saying, look, God is God is in this. God's a God of comfort. I couldn't, I didn't even know what to say. Uh, that was like on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, literally, this is Tuesday at 2 o'clock, 
On Wednesday morning, the next call comes in. Pastor Mike, so-and-so just passed away. What do you mean so-and-so just passed away? And then after that, it was call after call. My father's in the hospital. My mother's in the hospital. My father died. We had one family that the father passed away. The mother was in critical. And now the daughter was now COVID positive. In our context, this, this pandemic wiped out entire households, literally. And, and the reason why, and I, and, I, and I hear you on the, you know, let's take, let's not make it political, but when you look at the system, right, right and how it interacts with refugees and immigrants, the African-American and the Latino that are economically marginalized, I mean, you have to step into the sociopolitical space to speak, to speak truth to power yeah. because social distancing in New York City is not, uh, is not something that's real. We have project buildings that go up 19 flights. There's only two elevators. You got 700 families that live in the building. There's only two elevators. There's no social distancing. There's no way. Everybody's in the same elevator. There's only two staircases. Everybody's in the same staircase. So now the whole building has it and it turns into a plague. And unfortunately it has hit, it has hit. Now, you know, there was a big article that came out in the Washington Post on our church when it first came out. But I've got to tell you, I mean, it, there, there's churches and there's communities in New York that suffered up to 100 losses in their missional communities. 100 casualties within a two-month span is how aggressive this thing was. So it was traumatic. It was New York City wasn't ready for it. Our systems that were already in place were not built, not for those on the margins, not for those on the margins. The system's in place because the margin space tends to be under-resourced, underserviced, right? And, and little to no access. So, you know, uh, healthy eating and, and healthy um, health, health agencies coming in to provide testing, we lagged. And so it, it was suffering. So I got to tell you, I had to go to therapy, you know, and I come from a social work background. I've got 30 years social work history, an administrator, my credential proper is to supervise social workers and CSWs. And so ultimately it was very, very difficult because all of my theological training has informed me, I've got to be there. I love the sheep, I, I, I mourn with the sheep, I, I facilitate the funeral, I, I hug the person that suffered the loss. And all of those methodologies, we could not apply. So I got people that I buried, that we baptized, that we married, that we couldn't connect with. Compounded with, many of our people would drop off their spouse at the hospital, and the death toll was so high in New York that they were losing people's bodies. Losing people's bodies. There was something that came out in the news about two months, about a month and a half ago. One funeral parlor in our, in our region was so overwhelmed, they had two U-Haul trucks filled with bodies because the refrigerator and the funeral parlor was already packed, right? And they were decomposing in the parking lot. I mean, literally, you would think in 2020, we'd have the technology and the savvy to mitigate this accordingly. We didn't. It blew us up. And so it was very hard to deal with. Wow. My it breaks my heart to to hear this, to see what you guys have actually gone through. And at the same time to hear again, and I shared this before, I have people on my timeline from all types of walks of life or, or, or people that are friends rather, 
from all types of walks of life, from all types of political persuasions. And, and it breaks my heart to hear um, how people minimize, minimize this and made it seem as if it was just a plot to, to tank the economy or to make the president look bad or to do something like that when personally, and it's not about me, you, this is your story, but personally I was talking to parents um, who have lost their kids and, and, and sharing, uh, you know, I had no words. <laughs> Um, when them saying that it's unfair that I have to lose a child of COVID and every week was watching people, you know, pass away uh, that I knew directly or indirectly. And, um, and these are Christian brothers um, that were sharing some of the same and sisters sharing the same stuff that, oh, this is a hoax and this, that, and the other. And then to know that this is happening as you share. Um, our, our, our school district, Carmen, we were able to transition um, pretty well uh, in, in Avondale and, and make sure people got equipment. And, and Pontiac is right across the street <laughs> from us. And, and I didn't really think about, you know, how it, it would have impacted Pontiac as far as getting people with internet. I, I watched my wife who was working from home. She's a social worker, making sure families were connected with like Comcast and various other things to get the internet, to get it up and get the computers. But just thinking about a whole school system that may not have had access to turn around and then the language barriers, this is real stuff. This is, these are the effects and, and which leads into, and I'm looking at the clock, we're, we're kind of running behind, but this is good. Um, about justice, the effects of this pandemic. What does this say about justice and, and systemic racism? Um, anybody could just share with that and then we're gonna move on because I, I wanna get to how do we respond as a church? I wanna get to that. I don't wanna just talk about the issue. There's some other questions here that we're probably gonna, we're gonna have to skip, but I wanna talk more, not just the problem, but as the church, this moment that is before us, how do we lean into this moment? How do we step back from um, whatever we are, we're, we're ingesting and, 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 and really see God and respond the way God wants us to respond as Christian brothers and sisters, no matter what background you're from? So let me ask that question about justice and systemic racism. What does these effects say about it? And, 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 and let me preface it with this. When I, did some research. I was looking at the Latino community and Latinx community and looking at the, the risk factors um, as, and you brought this out, Michael, living in large households, poor access to healthcare, uh, work providing essential service. Many of them were essential service workers um, having underlying health conditions. Some of the same things in the Afri African-American community, um, at-risk communities, uh, diabetes, obesity, obesity, high blood pressure, and, and also less likely to seek out medical assistance. And only as a last result, some were not seeking medical assistance. Um, so what does it say about justice and, and systemic racism? Well, I'll start that. I'm sure people have other contexts, but I'll say to you that it revealed in my mission context a tale of two cities, because when you look at the death toll, it's in the Bronx, it's in Brooklyn, 
It's in Queens, in the most impoverished Afro-Latino communities throughout the city. Staten Island was also in the most impoverished Latino Afro-centered communities, which have a very high level of, of educational inequity, meaning, and this is where you see, you have to get into a prophetic posture to speak truth to power and then vote. If you have the right to vote, to vote. However you vote is your, your conscience. But to know that there are certain districts that will get more monies for educational resources and the more colorful districts that are African-American and Latino don't get the same tax dollar support. That is an intentional decision at a political level, right? Of people that we put in office. And so we have to reconcile our theology in many cases because there are some evangelicals that are turning around and say, you know, let's just pray and have patience. You know, right. we're just passing through. No, 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 no. You know, the gospels teach us specifically, right? The kingdom of God is now. And the yes. church is an extension of the kingdom of God. We are the hands, the feet, and the mouth of Jesus until the final consummation. Whatever your eschatology is, until Jesus gets here, we're not just passing through. We're bringing the kingdom of God down here, speaking yeah. truth to power and addressing systems, right? Yes. So you look at Luke 4. Look at Luke 4, real quick exegesis, because I don't want to get political, because I hear you. I don't want to get red, blue. Jesus says in Luke 4, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. He gives right. the scroll back, the scroll of Isaiah, quoting 52, 56, 57, 58, setting the captives free. If you look at who's in the room and you look at first century context, Jesus was in a context where he was doing ministry in a situation of oppression under Roman pagan rule. The people that were listening to him were Jews that were oppressed under a system that was abusive. Not much has changed in 21st century America where we see the same sort of, there's a majority culture. And, and many times they're gonna say, oh, it's a flu. Wow, what kind of flu takes out 15 people in four weeks? What kind of flu takes out? This is a plague. This is not a flu. And so the, the, the dismissal of the crisis is an ideological political issue. The, the abdication to realize and to own that we have marginalized people groups intentionally is a socio-political socio situation. And those issues have got to be reconciled theologically. Because they're yes. not sociopolitical alone. They are a theological concern. They are a missiological concern. If we're doing missiology in our context, we've got to navigate through political systems. That's just, that's just the world. Mm -hmm. And so how do we be incarnational and prophetic? Name it, call it, and then do something about it by voting. That's how we have to address it. But at this point, for somebody to say that we don't live in a systemic, fall, a, a, a fallen systemic world, and we don't have a racist situation going on in this country, you are you just don't want to see it. Right. And if you don't want to see it, it's because either white fragility, white culture, or you know, you, you, you just don't want to, you don't have the you don't have the, the the love or the sensitivity to see the Imago Day and the other. And so and I don't mean to get passionate, but no. you know, <laughs> this is the truth. I, I've seen too many of my people die in my church and other people mm -hmm. in, in, in another place say it's a flu. Mm -hmm. Speak to the lady who just lost her seventh grade son, mm -hmm. who, who I also have his brothers and sisters in my second and third and fourth grade. And the next day they come to school, right? Because that's what their big brother would want them to do. Mm -hmm.
And this is a flu? This is a hoax? Come on. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you speaking with passion. It's, I mean, I, I think of the scripture uh, John said. He said, how can you love God? This is what he's saying. How can you love God who you have not seen and hate your brother who you see? That's and right. you say, and, 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 and how also seeing your brother in need, seeing your brother, sister in need. We look at the vulnerable all throughout the scripture, the vulnerable God is telling his people, you will defend the, the widow. You will defend the foreigner, the stranger. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. But he says, again, how dwells the love of God in you? How can you say you really have the love of God in you when you see these inequities and not respond? The only reason you can do it is if you see them as other, as you said, not as their Maggle Day, um, not seeing them as an image bearer. You see them as less than. When you see these inequities and you not respond, because if you, and you can say, yeah, we love. No, love is not divorce or sacrifice. They're That's coupled right. together. You you have to, love makes you move. That's right. And you cannot honestly say you love. That's a word. And you stay by the wayside. Mm -hmm. That's Bible. He said, you're a liar. You, you cannot do that. Um, so anyway, I, again, this is your voice. Anybody else wanted to comment on that? And then we got to jump into. You know, this is what I have to say. Like Pontiac is in the middle of the Oakland County. Mm -hmm. And we have all these suburbs around this area. And this is like a lost town. Nobody knows that it existed. It's like all these people don't even want to believe that there is so much need in this little town. Mm -hmm. I see like all of this with my COVID response, which Life Church has a big part of that, and all the people that has been helping, you know, delivering food and everything. I say, I know so many Christian people that I know are so good people. Where are they? Why are mm -hmm. they in their homes? Why are they not out trying to help the people who is in need? We need mm -hmm. to stop being so passive and call ourselves we are good Christians. We need to be proactive. We need to show who we are and how are we going to do it? How are we going to show the love of Christ? Staying in our house, looking at watching at the news and feeling sorry for the people next to us or just going to try to help and provide love and care for the people who really need. Man, and, and for me, the, and Clever, I see you just unmuted. For me, the onus is not necessarily, again, the world, it is the church. Um, we talk about, you know, people talking about reparations and other things and, and, you know, righting wrongs. How can we, how can we think the world is going to take that lead if the church don't do it? Um, you know, write in your budget. <laughs> Here, here's my challenge. Write in your budget um, um, to specifically address some of these initiatives some of these issues put put money where your mouth is and not just write a check but like you talked about being incarnational get involved be a part not a project jesus didn't make us a project he dwelt he came and dwelt among us yeah, that's right brother uh, i'm sorry clever <laughs> i hear what mike describing really fails a lot what we talked so far you know when you when you see so many deaths 
in your community. My heart really goes to you art people and it's it's really break my heart and it's personal. It's something that you went through, the community went through. Uh, what I see here, I, I, I fully agree with you brothers about justice. We need justice. I believe we also need some education. Yeah, there's a lot of ignorance over there. And uh, I was really surprised with the CEO of the company that I'm working for. She said, it's time to start asking why and start saying what I'm going to do. We find excuses. Why? Why they're still living there? Why they live in the situation? Why they do? It's time to stop doing those things and start doing something. I'm very proud of our church. Uh, as soon as the situation started, they start to fund to support people that are going through situation financially or in health. And I fully agree with you, brothers. That it is on the church and praying that we have people in leadership, hmm. leadership in the companies, CEOs, CFOs, leader in the community, leader in the country that can represent us, that understand, you know, because there's this ignorance trying to understand and trying to say why, uh, why, why is still happening? Right. Well, 50 years ago, why still is important today? So hmm. it's starting. What, what we have to do, what we have to do for New York, what we have to do for Panicky. I agree with Carmen, it's a shame. Why Panicky is in the middle of Oakland County and there's still, still <laughs> there's no skills, you know, there's no skills. It's really a lack of leadership and commitment to solve the problem. It's, uh, we live in the richest country in the world and there is no skills. Amen, brother. All right, brothers. Oh, amen, brother. You said it. Amen. Amen. Evelyn, did you have something? If not, we're going to jump into yeah. these. Yep, go ahead. Just really quick, just to, um, you know, uh, speak to our community because we have a lot of the immigrant community and the importance it is in um, having, addressing these things because I think that when you understand these issues, um, you can start speaking to them. And for us, it's really, I have just seen um, a lot of our young uh, Latinos just say, you know, enough is enough. We are going to educate ourselves. We are going to talk to our families about these things because also as much as we want everybody, all the, you know, let's, let's all get together and we're gonna do um, this demonstration. There's a bit of fear of if I go out there, I'm undocumented, I'm an immigrant. You know, I wanna stand alongside you um, but there's always this fear. Um, yeah. So I think it's important to, to raise up these young leaders in our communities um, to start um, addressing these issues. And uh, like Pastor Michael was saying, yes, absolutely. Um, start taking a stance with voting. Let's get out there. Let's say, hey, we are here. We want our voices to be heard. Yeah, that's good. Now, so let's talk about some practical steps as we, as we kind of wrap things up. Practical steps to bridge this gap. Um, if you read Isaiah 58, um, God told his people, you will be a, called a repairer of the breach. We see the breach. We see the issues. Um, how do we restore? How do we bridge the gap? How, how do we become people that make a difference? And, and again, I think when the world sees the love, when they see the church 
in action. Um, it's quote unquote white church, black church, Latino church, the church, when they see us in action moving across all of these political, sociopolitical and uh, socioeconomic um, planes, when they see us moving in love, honoring one another, I think that's gonna be our greatest witness. So how, what are some practical steps you'll give um, not only to you know, other people, but to the Latino community? And you spoke to it as far as developing leaders. How do you develop leaders, uh, upcoming leaders to properly navigate in various arenas? And uh, what other steps that, would you recommend, practical steps would you recommend for bridging this gap? And some of them you said already about voting and other things. Yeah, I want to say that Evelyn is so on point. You know, education is the key for our millennials and the Z generation coming behind us. But the Latino church, which let me just say this to you, because we act as if we're the minority and, and the status quo we are, but in numbers, we're the majority. But we are so fragmented in people groups, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Bolivia, Colombia, Mexico, we don't come together. And if we were to come together, we'd be a, the giant that wakes up in unity and, and in voting power. And so I think it's educating uh, generationally, right? First gen, second gen, third gen, socio reality. Know who are the politicians in your community. You are not signing up for red or blue but you need to know who leads and who speaks for you in your district. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a, cap, a capacity building issue that needs to happen. Uh, the church, the Latin church in particular, needs to embrace community. You know, the, the raja tabla experience or the legalistic controlling tendency of the Caribbean Pentecostal church that I was formed in says that we are separate from the world. The world is there and then we're the church. They take that and they misappropriate that and they create a, a, a pseudo doctrine that then gives you an excuse to let everything happen outside mm -hmm. the church building and then you don't do anything about it besides pray. And, and to your point, mm -hmm. Donnell, there's gotta be action. So the church has gotta open up its doors. It has gotta walk away from its institutional moorings and embrace the community of many colors. And then once it's understood its context, immerse itself in understanding economics. Let me tell you this, you know, I'm in the seminary all the time, teaching the students that most of my, most of my, my days are spent on that in, in, uh, in New York City. Ultimately, we have great theology constructs that we teach. We don't teach enough about community mapping and economics. If you mm. wanna understand missiology, if you're an urban pastor or a pastor period, there's something called missiology. And when you turn the corner in Chicago, in New York, if you go to LA and you turn a corner, go into a different community, because economics change, the missiological trends change. Mm. And we don't prepare our clergy enough, men and women, to be able to synthesize, contextualize, and adapt to the shifts of economics within their community, which wow. is their parish, which is their community and context. So we've got to really embrace and take a posture of student and humility and relearning what it means to be a community church and embrace Latino, African-American, whatever other is in that community. Because you know, to your point, you opened up with Revelation seven and before his throne was every culture. Every yeah. That's why I'm in the covenant church. That's yes. why I'm in the covenant church because I'm not Swedish, I'm Puerto Rican, right? <laughs> but this is a church that sees the immigrants. Yes. And so we've got to be able to see each other and then See a Mago Day in you, see a Mago Day in me, and then learn together. 
The minute the church starts doing that, the Latin church starts doing that, you're going to see a revival breakout in English and Spanish. Come on. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's going to English, man, and it's going to roll. Grace will roll into the street, not just justice. Come on. Not just justice. Who is including Portuguese? Amen. <laughs> Brazil. <laughs> Brazil, too. Yes. Yes. And those are my thoughts. Anyone else? You know, I'll say this. I love the fact of, of, of saying, taking the posture of, of a learner. And you think about the one we say we follow, Jesus. Um, when you look at Philippians 2, who emptied himself. Um, and I think a lot of times we try to understand each other from our own context instead of stepping into the other context. And I said this when we had the um, panel with our African-American um, brothers and sisters, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the part that I really love is, is the Samaritan came where he was. <clears throat> it specifically states that because from the distance, you can always say why, um, why he's in that situation, why or what could have happened. I can judge you from the distance. But when I get close to you and I, I see your wounds, I see the systemic issues, I see um, what's plaguing um, and what's keeping you somewhat down, um, it, I can move by compassion um, because I, I, I'm not just hearing your cry. I actually see why you're crying. And I think, again, if we're going to model and be followers of Jesus, then it would be it would serve us right to walk in that way as a learner to to come beside mm -hmm. and to be embedded and to learn. And so I encourage uh, our, our white brothers and sisters, uh, African-American, everybody to take that posture and, and, and be uh, a learner. So we're, we're getting close to the time. Um, I, had, I, I still had a couple of questions, but let me just say this. There's a, some people will say, well, that's, that's social issues. How do you tie this into the gospel? Okay. So how is, how is this gospel centered? Yeah. So uh, can I speak to that? Right. Cause I deal with that often. This often. Mm -hmm. I am in reformed, capital R, capital C, Calvinistic context all the time. And these debates often come, right? And while my, my, my uh, demon is in liberation theology, it doesn't mean that I am a leftist. It doesn't mean uh, that I'm liberal, right? I am orthodox in my theology, right? Um, ultimately, we cannot have a selective hermeneutic. Well. And we have allowed the majority church, the evangelical church, uh, in the United States to embrace an anemic theology and a selective hermeneutic, in particularly around Matthew 25. Mm -hmm. Everyone takes Matthew 25, gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they focus on the eschatological imagery, the lamb, the goats. We'll move past all the eschatology, and he gets to the part, when I was hungry, yes, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was incarcerated, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Well, guess what? That's health and human services. That is social health methodology. And Jesus himself gives us an imagery. And then not only does he give us an imagery, he gives us a, a, a meta-narrative implied within the text. He turns around and says, when I was, you came. The church is not supposed to look at the need and not, a, not address it. You just cited the, the, the Good Samaritan. 
The other side of the Good Samaritan is that there's a Levi and there's a priest that walk right over the dying guy. And the church has been walking over dead bodies for too long. The church has been on its way to church, walking over the impoverished, walking over the immigrant, walking over children detained at the borders, walking over Black Lives Matters, walking over African-Americans that have been suffering and marginalized and oppressed. The church has got to stop walking over and start walking into. That's a gospel issue. And Jesus himself gives us the framework. Yeah, that, that passage you referenced, actually, this is how we separate the sheep from the goat yeah. based on that. Uh, yeah, you saw me and you came or you did not. And I guess, again, the cry of Lord, Lord, when did we? You know, we, right. we've done exhibit A. We, they, they started listing off the things that they did do. And he's like, you don't know me. Because right. if, if we don't know the God of justice, if, if, if we're, and not knowledge um, cognitively, if you, if you don't have experiential ex, uh, knowledge of this God of justice who will not just sit by and, 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 and look at cities and places being impoverished, if you don't know him, you were not working for him. He said, you were not serving me. That's you were right. serving iniquity. That's right. You were serving yourself. That's right. You're serving yourself. That's right. And and this is the Bible, the same Bible <laughs> that we that, that we that we that we read, the same yeah. Jesus that we where we're saying that we are following. So, you know, part of the issue, part of the issue academically, theologically, is that people just want to stop with a with a first phase exegesis of the text. Mm -hmm. We don't just define the word in the text. We're supposed to define the social historical reality, the momentum within the text. The text comes alive within a broader social movement and we don't exegete the movement. And because of that, we're just giving definitions and we don't know how to do action in our praxis in the church. Anyway, right. just my thoughts. Yes, sir. Anyone else? And then we'll, we'll close with our closing remarks. Anyone else wanted to comment on I that? Believe, I believe that we, God created us human. We are just simple human beings, everybody. No matter where you come from, no matter where, you might not like one person, that doesn't mean you have to hate everybody. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, humans, we need to take each other as humans. And if we are the followers of Christ, no matter how much politics, social, uh, different in, in uh, sizes, different in food, different in money, we are just simple human beings. And as long as we learn to walk all together the same path, we are not going to succeed. And we are not going to find heaven here on earth. I think mm. love is something that was created by God. But we are not a race. We are a human. He created us like him. So we need to love each other the way we are, no matter what kind of person or where are you from? You have money, you are black, you are yellow, you are green, you, whatever you are. We are just people, human beings created by love and we need to love each other. We don't have to like each other, but we have to love each other. And we have to help the person that is next to us all the time. But everything starts with us and we are the ones who are starting this movement and hope all the people that are listening to us they start doing the same. 
You just start taking care of the people that you see that is on your right and your left. Then we move, and if everybody starts doing that, we will make a change. The United States is a great country, and we need to continue like that. Amen. We cannot allow hate to continue in all ways, all ways of life. It's not about the person. It's about everything. We mm -hmm. need to bring love back to everybody. Amen. Amen. Closing remarks. Closing remarks, everyone. I just quick thing, okay? Just... Our, our lead pastor is Steve Andrews. Uh, we had, uh, 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 we were there, but we just had the Bible study Friday. And he approached me and the agent. He, he asked, Can you guys start a service Sunday? I said, We can, but we are a small community. We just have 100 people. I want to have you guys here at the lobby at the end of the service. So, People at Kenston, they can see people that speak different, they look different, they behave different. Uh, the reason why it hurts Michael and he has so much passion is because it's personal for him. Hmm. So if he, I don't know anybody, if I don't have any friend that has a different co color of the skin to what I have that speak different, that came from a different country, it's never personal to me. It's like, it, oh, why the church separates so much on Sundays. That's why we have the, the white church, we have the African-American church, we have the Spanish church. So I'll, I'll give a challenge here to people that are listening to us. Invite someone for a barbecue. We cannot go inside the house. That doesn't look like you. Yes. That's different. You, you probably have some neighbors. If you live in Troy, if you're living in, in this area here, you, you'll have people walking in front of your house that you never say hello. Just invite them, start a conversation. Because when it becomes personal, yes, hearts, we start taking action. Amen. Look at the other side, like the Pharisee, like the, we start caring about, we start feeling what Jesus told us to, to do in Matthew 25. So let's try to develop this kind of relationship. Someone doesn't look like you. That's a, we live in a mission field. We live in, here in Auckland County, but most of us, you know? You live in California, not a mission field. You live in New York, another mission field. Let's look someone different from us. Let's try to develop a relationship. And God is going to use this. Jesus is, going, Jesus is all about Jesus. You know? It's all about bring us close to the cross. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but we need to have this relationship. Amen. Thank you so much. Evelyn. Can I just, yes, I just want to add one thing. Um, I, I absolutely, we need to love on each other. We need to show Christ's love. Um, but I do need to say that um, being part of the covenant, I think that there is a responsibility and I'm just, I'm going to speak to our uh, white brothers and sisters. Um, for many, I've been part of the covenant since I was uh, five years old. And you just, it's not, I, I mean, the disparities, we can see them. The injustices, we could see them. And I hear so much of, we stand with you in solidarity and that's gonna come at a cost. So I think that, you know, how are we going to raise up our leaders? How are we going to do that? Well, I'm gonna speak to the church as a whole and say, if you have a platform and you know that there are well-equipped young leaders,
hearts to come and to speak the word that um, that could really just empower, then give them that. And I know it comes, it does come at a sacrifice and a cost. Um, but that's really what solidarity looks like yeah. uh, for our young people to say, hey, you said, you know, you were with me, then show me because I'm yeah. I'm getting tired of just hearing it. So um, I just wanted to speak to a little bit um, to that because I know that we are one, but we also need to show it with our actions. Amen. Amen. You know, I've heard people say about not having people qualified, but again, that's where you can write in your budget um, to say, hey, let's invest in a cohort of people of color or whatever the case may be to make sure they're quote unquote qualified. Um, let's have people on your stage um, mm -hmm. when you're, more than a campaign because uh, some congregations, mm -hmm. the only time they see a person from color from the stage is connected to a campaign. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go beyond um, again, just seeing and that's what I told people. Let's not just share a post. Let's share the load. This is a gospel issue. This is connected directly to the gospel. Um, the, the, the Great Commission, as we, as we close, the Great Commission uh, to make disciples of all nations. And then he gives us power to accomplish that mission statement through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it does take sacrifice it does take empty and as you uh, mentioned clever getting into relationships that's what we call it the three c's the the uh, being committed and because it's, it's not easy um to connect with people that are different from you you know how you connect with people that are different in your family <laughs> just imagine how it is connecting with people that you you've had a completely different context but being committed being cross-cultural being intentional about um, relationships that are cross-cultural and then always keeping christ at the center where we're directing people to the way um, of, of Christ. And so that's who we are. And that's what we were doing. Any other closing remarks, um, Michael? Or Yeah, I love what Evelyn just stated. You know, um, it's got to be more than the Love Mercy Do Justice crew. I appreciate Dominique Gilliard and Debbie Blue when she was there and Cecilia Williams when she was there. And, and you know, I agree. I mean, and uh, in, in our conference, there's 89 churches or something like that. Majority are majority culture. And these the sprinkled right um, um, Afro-Latino churches, Asian churches that are now starting to diversify, but the covenant, there's room for growth. I love the fact that we talk about it publicly. And what made me stay in the covenant was when I heard Gary Walter 15 years ago, I, my first midwinter, he said, and I saw this as an Afro-Latino in the back at Chicago in, in, the, in the ballroom, he says, we are an immigrant church. And so we see you, mm. you're safe here. That's why I stood in the covenant. I heard Gary say that. Mm. And it's gotta, be, it's gotta go beyond us saying, we are an immigrant church, right. be out there. I was encouraged to see Craig Gamelgard, and I wanna give him a shout out for coming and marching with us for Pray March Act. Mm. That was the first time in the 15 years that I've been involved with the covenant I saw somebody from the conference office come out and be with us in the street about poverty, about racism, about systemic oppression. And um, that was refreshing, but we need more of that. It cannot be a moment. It's gotta be a movement. Yes. And, uh, th those, those are my, those are my, my words. 
Yeah, and we we can't miss this moment. We got to be. We it's, it's time for us to to move into action. And thank you, again. I, I sincerely appreciate um, each and every one of you, the panel. Thank you for those that are listening. I'm encouraging everyone to make sure you uh, share this with your friends <clears throat> as. <clears throat> When um, some of these issues broke out, people were texting me, what do we do? What do we do? What do you do? And, and honestly, one, it, it was it was a, a thing of prayer for me. I stayed back. I didn't just come out and, and, and voice how I felt because I wanted to hear from God. Um, one of the things that I suggested people is to have conversations with their friends. It's great to march and, and do it, but have these critical conversations with your loved ones. Yeah. That, that's my challenge. Have, I mean, the people that you know, that you, one, you have rapport with already, and you know they have um, some racist views and they see things a different way. Have these conversations with those people. Use your voice when you hear in your circle things that are not just, not right. Use your voice then. 